0: Luke chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 25. Hear once again God's word. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. As far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearing this morning. We continue, as we have been now, really for several weeks, in this moment, where here you have the light of Israel. Really, that light that could not be doused through all of Israel's defection. The promise of the Messiah coming in fulfillment to his temple. That temple that typified God dwelling among his people. We come to that moment where the type and the antitype meet. Where the true temple, the greater temple, comes into this house of brick and of mortar. And as we've spent now the past several weeks looking particularly at Simeon, we've seen a man who's recognized the significance of this moment. He knows the one who is now conducted to the priest for this ritual cleansing, this ritual sacrifice. He knows the Christ Christ whom Mary and Joseph bring into the temple. And as we've noted about Simeon, Simeon here represents for us a remnant, a very, very small remnant in an age of decline. There are those in Israel who did wait for consolation to come to the church. There are those in Israel who looked by faith to the promises of the Messiah and did so unfeignedly, did so genuinely. Simeon represents that lot, a very small body of people. And here we have their experience. Here we have the experience of those who have waited for the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And what have we found? Well, beloved, as we look at this text, we find here this man, this one who is really a rare man in Jerusalem in his day, holds in his arms the desire of the ages, the desire of the nations. He holds him in his very arms. Then, perhaps not surprisingly, he falls to worship. He blesses God, as you have it there in verse 28. And then as we took up last Lord's Day morning, he also offers a petition. He redemonstrates that he is a man. As he holds the salvation of Israel, As he holds the Lord's Christ, he is a man contented to die. In fact, he's a man that looks at death as though it will bring him liberation. He looks at death as though it will be accompanied with peace. He's a man, in other words, who is quite weaned from the world and who longs for the very one whom he holds. Now, as we look at this text you'll notice that verses 30 down to 32 really are the ground or the reason for this petition. He describes for us the salvation that he beholds. He describes for us the Lord's Christ that he was promised to see. And so, friend, I want you to notice, just even before we begin, as Simeon, in this moment that is incredibly profound, in in this moment that should really, for us, one of the most profoundest moments in scriptures. Simeon thinks of life and of glory. I want you to notice what he says. In verse 30 he says, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. The word there, prepared, is, has behind it the idea, as we'll see in a moment's time, the idea of appointment or ordination. A light to lighten Gentiles. Here, Simeon lifts a phrase that occurs in twice in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 42 6 and Isaiah 49 6. But I want you to notice, just as he lifts this phrase from Isaiah, note how he thinks of the Messiah. He is light. And what are the nations? They are by implication darkness. He is light. This one who is salvation, this one who is Israel's consolation, is light. And in comparison to him, the nations are simply dark. And then you find that this one is also the glory of thy people Israel. At this stage, Simeon notes, really quoting from no prophecy directly, he notes that the one whom he holds is the one really who beautifies, and who is also the one who makes Israel glorious. He is Israel's glory, light to the nations, and the glory of his people, Israel. The words are quite straightforward. There's really not too much uh, that one would have to say to make sense of what Simeon here brings before us. This is the Christ whom Simeon beholds, it's as though he said, I am contented to die and expect to die peacefully as I hold to Christ who is your salvation, no less in my arms than by faith. This Christ who has been ordained for the salvation of all people, I behold he who will be light to those nations long in deep darkness and who is the boast and the beauty of thy ancient people, Israel. These are Simeon's thoughts as he speaks under inspiration of God's spirit, as he speaks at this moment when he holds the greater temple, standing in the entrance of Solomon's. But friends, as we look at this text, as I've just said, we need to recognize that this is Simeon speaking in the spirit of prophecy. Simeon is one inspired by the spirit of God to speak what he does here. We can't miss that. But neither can we miss also that this is genuinely a confession of his own faith. All of this falls under the context of Simeon's very personal petition. Now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace. These are the grounds, these are Simeon's reasons for making such a petition. This is the Christ whom he beholds that makes that petition, if you like, make sense. This is, even as it is, given to us under inspiration of God's Spirit, it is genuinely a confession of Simeon's faith. This is his estimation. This is his view of Christ. Friend, I want you to notice this, that this is a confession of faith. A confession of faith and not a confession of sight. Note the Christ whom Simeon beholds. He must be born as a babe in the arms of his parents. He must be carried. He must be nurtured. He must have someone else swaddle and feed him. This being only 41 days after his birth. This is the Christ whom Simeon sees. And as far as the onlooking world is concerned, there's nothing remarkable there. Nothing remarkable that should elicit such praise. But this shows us, doesn't it, very emphatically that Simeon looks to Christ and he holds Christ not merely with the arms and the eyes of his flesh. But he looks even at a Christ who has entered into a state of humiliation. He looks to Him with the eyes of faith. This is a confession of faith. He sees a glorious Christ who in the words of the Apostle in Philippians 2, had that glory for a time laid aside. Nevertheless, this believing man sees Christ. He describes for us the Christ then whom he beholds and whom he holds by faith. And what does this teach us? Well, friend, the theme that I would insist on this morning is just this, that Christ is, according to Simeon, the brilliance and beauty of his people. Christ is the brilliance and the beauty of his people. And I want us to see that under three headings. First of all, the bargain, as Christ is offered. Then, the brilliance that Simeon here perceives. And then lastly, the beauty that he ascribes to God's people for Christ's sake. And so take, first of all, what you have here in verse 31. When Simeon thinks of Christ... When he comes to describe the salvation whom he sees, when he thinks of the consolation of Israel, he says thus, this is that which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. I said to you just a moment ago that that word prepared there has behind it the idea of appointment or ordination. Uh, One of our forebears translates the text this way. He says, which thou hast ordained or appointed To be known of all men. Before the face of all peoples, of course, is a Hebrewism. To be before one's face is to be known by that person. And so when Simeon looks to Christ, he says very emphatically, it was part of the divine economy, part of God's decree, that this Christ whom I hold, this Christ would be known of all peoples. And he explains for us what he means when he says all peoples. It's given to us in verse 32. He describes the nations, the Gentiles, and the Jews. All peoples indiscriminately. He would be set before them. And friend, we can't miss this. The idea here is, is of course, not just that they would have some cognitive awareness that the Lord's Christ has come. But in order for Christ really to enlighten, In order for Christ really to beautify, Christ must also be offered. That knowledge also carries with it the offer of Christ. So what does Simeon tell us? Well friend, in verse 31, it's as though he's simply telling us this. That it was part of the divine intention. Part of God's calling. Part of the reason why Christ came. That he might be offered indiscriminately, And universally. The point that Simeon draws down on, and we can't miss this, is that this is the appointment of Christ. As we think about that, beloved, you have to recognize that here Simeon thinks of two things, really. He thinks of the divine intention, the appointment or the ordination of Christ to be known and so to be offered, and then the offering of Christ himself, and all the benefits that would come to those who would receive the offer. Our older divines would speak of this, and for good reason, as the bargain, the bargain God makes with sinners, the offer that God makes as he cries, come to this market and buy freely. This is the very thing Simeon has in view as he holds Christ in his arms. And fact, what we are taught here very pointedly is that Christ is indeed to be offered freely to all peoples. And I want you to notice that as Simeon draws down from the prophet Isaiah, either from chapter 42 or from chapter 49, what's striking is, is that as the Lord's Christ is described as the light for the Gentiles, I want you to notice what precedes that in Isaiah 42. I give thee for a covenant of the people. For a light of the Gentiles. If he is to be the Gentiles' light, he is to be the covenant himself. That is the covenant of grace, its meteor and its substance. He is to be that covenant, and therefore, this is the idea that lies behind our text that this is the Father's bargain, the covenant tendered to those who are yet in darkness. And that's precisely what Isaiah says. This covenant has been given to open the blind eyes, to bring out of the prisoners, from the prison, and them that sit in darkness, out of the prison house. This is the calling of Christ. That he would be offered as a covenant for the peoples, and so enlightened, bring the blind out, bring the prisoner doomed to die, bring them out from their confines. To be genuinely the consolation of souls, it would lay hold of him by faith. My friend, I'd note just at this moment, this offer must of necessity be a free one, must it not? Again, the text to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. How free must this offer be to blind and to bound souls who can do nothing for themselves? If he is to be a light, Darkness cannot generate the light they require. If he is to be freedom, the prisoner is entirely at somebody else's, at somebody else's mercy, to be liberated. If blind, something else, someone else must provide sight. But I want you to notice, beloved, as you look at this text, Simeon here has in view the idea, as I've already said he looks not just to what will happen. He looks not only to the future age of the gospel. He looks genuinely at the divine intention and the appointment of Christ. This is something Simeon sees that is officially part of Christ's calling. This is something that belongs to his office as Messiah. He is appointed to be offered. Ordained to be offered. I don't think we think about that as we ought to. But beloved, really what Simeon is saying here is that the Christ whom he holds is by virtue of his very office one that is to be tendered to sinners. That is part of Christ's calling. As much as it was part of Christ's calling to be born of a woman and made under the law. As much as it was part of Christ's calling to fulfill all righteousness. As much as it was part of Christ's calling to have his soul troubled, his body bruised. As much as it was part of Christ's calling to be raised with power from the dead and to now be seated on high that he might give good gifts to men, it was also part of his office that he would be offered, tendered to sinners. That is part of his calling. That is part of his appointment. He was appointed to cry, Come all ye who labor and are heavy laden. It was part of his calling to cry, "Hole, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. It was part of his calling to cry, Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. He was appointed to be such a Christ. It is his office. Beloved, as you think about that, there's so much that tenders to us, doesn't it? If his meat in life was to do his father's will, to go even to the cross, beloved, is it not also unthinkable that he would fail in this other aspect of his calling? That he would not offer himself to sinners freely and genuinely? Beloved, when you hear the offer of the gospel, you are to see, and this is directly from our text, it was for this very cause that Christ was appointed, that he might be offered to you, even this morning. It was part of his office to be incarnate, to live a sinless life, to die an ignominious death. To be raised again in power. To be ascended in glory. And it is part of Christ's office. To be offered to you. Even this morning. Even in this place. This is the thing that Simeon draws down on first of all. A Christ appointed to be known of all men. Whose gracious offer was to be tendered indiscriminately, universally. To all. But that brings us to the second aspect that Simeon has in view. This Christ, whose office it was to be so offered, is one who is a light to light in the Gentiles. This is a brilliant Christ in the fullest sense. But as you look at the text, friend Simeon really has three various things in view. There are three ideas. First of all, that Christ himself is light. This is, of course, denoting his righteousness and his life-giving power. Light and life go hand in hand throughout the scriptures. Christ is intrinsically brilliant, intrinsically illuminating. But secondly, friend, this implies also something, doesn't it, about the nations. The nations themselves, according to Simeon, are all in darkness. Christ is brilliant inherently. The nations are dark. But then thirdly, Simeon has in view the fact that Christ would indeed enlighten those in the dark. Christ is light, the Gentiles are in, dark, in darkness, but Christ would indeed enlighten them. You see here, friend, that what you have is Simeon's confidence that by God's grace, the offer of Christ would indeed be received that he would indeed enlighten Gentiles who were once mired in darkness. The theme is, of course, that Christ then was appointed to enlighten the nations. And this presupposes just those three things that I've just mentioned. Take, first of all, Christ's capacity. That he is enlightenment itself. That he is life itself. This this, This is the Christ whom Simeon holds. This is light itself come into the world. This is the one who cries, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment. The babe that Simeon holds in his hands, the Christ whom he beholds by faith, is the Logos, the eternal incarnate wisdom of God. This is the one who is brought out to us in our text. One who is light itself. And, and don't miss the comparison. He is light. He is light intrinsically while the nations are dark. But what does that mean? That means allow Simeon to set before you all the world's philosophers. Take your Socrates, your Plato, your Aristotle, your Pythagoras. Take all of these great minds that penetrated so deeply into the book of nature. And Simeon says in a very round, very decisive way, they are darkness in comparison to this light. Beloved, don't miss this. This is the very text that we read in 1 Corinthians 1, isn't it? The wisdom of the world, according to Simeon, is but darkness in comparison to the one whom he holds. Whom he beholds by faith. Oh, we so quickly miss that, don't we? But Simeon doesn't. All the rival systems of theology, the the rival philosophies that abounded in Simeon's day were to him as nothing. Christ was all. The very wisdom of God. And that teaches us something too, doesn't it? About secondly, the nation's darkness. Their brightness... Their noetic brilliance is but darkness in comparison to this Christ. And how deep is that darkness? I don't need to recount for you how deeply admired in darkness these nations were. Read only Romans 1. Sin punished by sin and really creating a cycle that leads only further and further away from God to the point where man doesn't even look like man anymore. Allow allow me to be bold just for a moment. Where even the book of nature becomes dim to man, so that he can't discern even the most natural and fundamental aspects of humanity. Does that sound familiar? This is the darkness of those without Christ. They are a dark, in a dark place and only sinking deeper and deeper into that darkness without the light whom Simeon holds. But then, friend, I want you to notice that notwithstanding all of these difficulties, notwithstanding the pervasiveness of sin and of hatred and rebellion against God, Simeon is persuaded by faith according to the words of the prophet, that he will indeed enlighten the nations. I want you just to take a moment and contemplate how profound that is. We think about this so loosely and lightly, don't we? But here stands a man in the temple, and even Israel is ignorant of the Christ whom he holds. Here is Simeon holding the very light of the world in his arms. And nobody pays attention. The heavens are not opening up with choirs of angels. The earth is going about its business as though it were simply another day. And the nations. How many even knew the name Jehovah in Simeon's day? And yet Simeon is persuaded by faith that the nations will indeed be enlightened by the very person whom he sees. Beloved, don't miss this. God's people are always always called. Always called to walk by faith. I want you to notice, beloved, as you look at this text, that here you have the promise that the nations would indeed be enlightened by Christ. And... Perhaps it might be a bit of a bypath. But as you look at the scriptures, you see where the nations first really depart. The nations after the flood, that is. Take Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, the scattering of the peoples. Why is that so significant? It's significant because the further and further away they went, the further and further, further they descended into darkness. The Lord scattered them abroad from thence which also became their scattering into sin. But then if you take the very next chapter, friend, you see how profound then Simeon's statements are. In Genesis 12, you have the promise to Abraham, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 are inextricably tied together. In Genesis 11, the nations are scattered because of their sin. In Genesis 12, God tells us how He will reclaim those nations through one of Abraham's seed. And so through the running millennia, this was the anticipation of the godly, that that which was scattered at Babel would one day become one day return to the Lord, become once again God's worshippers through Abraham's seed. And then Simeon here tells us he holds the one who will do that very thing. It's a striking moment, isn't it? But Beloved, I also want you to notice this. Again, if you think about Simeon's time, those who worshipped Jehovah were a very small number. I mean, think about the known world at the time. How deeply had the nations, how manifold had their idolatry fallen into their vanities? Friend, as you look at this, and you even compare the reality that so very few even knew the name, to the fact that even those who did know Jehovah, did know the scriptures, were admired in defection as was the case of the church in Israel in Simeon's day. How staggering is this statement? That these nations who don't even know the Scriptures, and this church who is only formal in their approaches to God, would one day find that Jesus Christ would indeed enlighten the nations, would indeed bring them back. And then, friend, Look at our day. Our ancestors in this part of the world didn't even know the name Jehovah. Our ancestors had no knowledge of the scriptures. We were part of the outer isles, the outermost parts of the world. And now the God of Abraham is worshipped. Is that by accident, friend? Is it by accident that that all of a sudden these these pagan nations would come to know the God of Abraham when the Baals are forgotten, the Zeuses are no longer worshipped, Jupiter has no priests? Do you want proof, my dear friend, that Jesus Christ is and is only God's Messiah? That He is indeed fulfilling all that He has promised, that He would bring the nations to Himself? Friend, look only here. That's the very point. Because Simeon looks by faith to a moment such as this. When we who are strangers to the covenant of promise would worship God in spirit and in truth. But Simeon only saw it by faith. Simeon saw this moment that you and I live in. But only by faith. Beloved, this should... Harden us, shouldn't it, in a day of decline. In spite of all of that darkness, the promise of God did not fail. Nations were indeed enlightened by this Christ, notwithstanding every impediment. And he who did that will certainly bring it to consummation. But thirdly and finally, beloved, you see here that the one whom Simeon holds He describes emphatically as the glory of his people Israel. And don't miss just how profound this is. He's saying that Christ is the church's adorning, the church's crowning good. But friend, note also just how profound that claim is. This is a staggering claim. It's staggering because of these texts. There's only one in Scripture. Only one! Only one in Jehovah worship who is so described. The Lord of hosts will be a crown for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. Isaiah 28. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are no gods? Yet my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Who is? who is alone, Israel's glory. In the scriptures, it is only Jehovah. It is only the Lord God. Simeon holds, according to his own faith, the incarnate God. This is a statement of divinity without any, without any exception, only Jehovah is described as the glory of his people. And here, profound and all should we even think of it with trembling, Simeon holds the incarnate God in his hands and by faith, and he knows it. He knows it. And let the Jehovah's Witness tell us all kinds of things. Simeon will say emphatically, he held Israel's glory. He saw the incarnate God. And beloved, I want you to note, as you look at this, not only is he Israel's glory, but as was promised before we find these words, God says through his prophet, thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. It is Israel's glory. But then friend, understand this. As the nations are enlightened, the prophets tell us pointedly that Israel's glory becomes the glory of covenanted nations, covenanted peoples. And this is what Simeon tells us. This is the Christ. The God-man who is the glory of his people. Enoch. Noah. Abraham. Moses. David. These are all described for us as those being of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews 11. But Christ alone. Christ alone is the church's glory. Not them. Oh illustrious saints that they were. Wonderful pictures of godliness they certainly were. The world was not worthy of them, says the apostle. But only Christ is the adornment of the church. Only Christ is that which beautifies his people. Which makes Zion honorable. That's what Simeon says. And he says it emphatically. Only this one, only he, only he makes the people of God glorious. The church is adorned by no other. No other. But him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Beloved, what do you find to be your most redeeming aspect, if you like? What is that which beautifies you? It must only be Christ. To really know him as Simeon knows him. This alone beautifies his people. He is both the beauty and the beautifier of God's people. Only he. Only he. Friend, let all of your spiritual disciplines be weighed in the balance. If they're without Christ, you are yet ugly. You are yet in filthy garments. But friend, let the saint be clothed with Christ. And he has all. He has all. Beloved, as we close, just a few items for application. First of all, note here how the Gospel writer presents to us the work of faith. We are to perceive Christ according to the promise. Simeon, again in his day, saw so very little with the eyes of his flesh. He didn't even see Calvary. He didn't see an empty tomb. He didn't see Christ taken up into glory. He saw Christ in his state of humiliation, and yet how much did he behold? How much did he see? Well, friend, that's faith's work. Always to behold Christ according to the promise. Always to behold Christ. Only by faith. But secondly, friend, that does raise the question, is this how we see Christ? You see, faith's work is to set Christ before us in spite of every seeming impediment. But it's also supposed to set before us Christ as He really is brilliance and beauty. As He really is light and glory. Do we see Christ in these ways? That's faith's work as well. When Simeon looks to Christ by faith, this is the Christ whom he beholds. Is everything else, beloved, Darkness in comparison to him to you this morning. Is the world's wisdom and all of its trappings, are all of those things dark in your heart compared to this Christ? That's how Simeon sees Christ. That's how Simeon accounts the state of things. They are darkness, but he is light. But then, friend, also that next and cutting question. What is your boast this morning? What is that which beautifies you? What is that which is your glory? Simeon says, I have only one. And it's Christ. It's just Christ. I can boast in nothing else. None of God's people can boast in any other. It is Christ and Christ alone who is my glory. Beloved, these are the things that faith presents to us as real pictures of our Redeemer. And so, friend, if you see Christ in these ways, I want you to notice that certainly Christ is your light. Are you dim? Do you require wisdom? Do you require more light? Beloved, Simeon tells us, look to the one who alone can enlighten even the darkest of minds, the one who can enlighten even the nations. And beloved, if you are looking to Christ by faith, he is your light and promises to do so. Do you find yourself ugly? Do you find yourself spiritually languishing? Beloved, where will you be beautified but in him? Where else will you find it? And yet here in the gospel Christ says, I will be my people's beauty before the bar of heaven. And I will be her beautifier. I will make her a beautiful bride. And Beloved, if you are in Christ, that promise is yours. Even this morning. And so take hold of Christ. Take hold of Christ as he really is. As he's held out to us in the scriptures. Not what the world would say. Not what the flesh would argue, but what the scriptures really say. And beloved, doing so, you'll find that you hold Christ in the profoundest way that Simeon held Christ. Not with the arms of flesh, and only for a moment, but by the arms of faith, and for everlasting years. Amen.